Hi, and welcome back to I Love You. I know. I'm Amanda. And I'm Kevin. And this is our podcast about love, marriage, and Star Wars, but it's mostly about Star Wars. Kevin, why do you love me? <laughs> because you're wonderful. Are you sure about yeah, that? absolutely. <laughs> Even if I make you start the podcast all over again? Yeah, it's okay. All right. We well. can always, we can fix it in post. <laughs> you guys can't see the look on his face, but uh, I, I don't make this easy. But thank you, Kevin, for loving me anyway. You're welcome. Thank you for loving me. So here we are. We are going to finish up season four of Rebels. And we're finally going to have some stuff to talk about relationship wise. And it's some real heavy stuff. So uh, if you need your hanky, get that out. Uh, also, if you haven't watched season four of Rebels, you're going to need a lot of uh, Kleenex. But yeah. yeah, yeah. Now th- this takes us up to like what about three months BBY? Yes, this is really running us right up against you know kind of Rogue One and Episode Four, and you know there are some people who have been hoping for additional Rebels content um, after Season Four, and I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you right now, you're not gonna get it because there's no room for it. There's nothing. There's nothing left. The story is done. There's nothing left to tell. Um, there are stories to be told about these characters after the rebellion, um, but uh, Rebels segues nicely into sort of the rest of the story as we have it. Right. And one of the nice things about this is pretty much every loose end we had gets tied up and we might create some additional loose ends, but everything else is tied up really nicely and sets us up perfectly for Rogue One and then episode four. Um one of the things that you mentioned that is really important to realize during this whole season four is that the Rebel Alliance isn't shown it in the most positive way. Yeah, this is kind of... <coughs> <coughs> yeah, this is kind of the first time that we've seen any Star Wars content that it doesn't, you know, completely glorify the Rebellion and the Rebellion leadership. Um, this season is really the beginning part of the season is about the Phoenix Squadron um, leaving the Rebellion and, and going back to Lothal. And in part because they start to realize that the Rebel Rebel Command is not making good, impactful decisions, that they you know are more interested in talking about things and gathering forces, but not actually doing anything. And they kind of get impatient, not impatient, they get rightfully um, upset with the lack of support that they're getting. And they were promised you know, the liberation of Lothal in exchange for them joining the the larger rebel alliance. And clearly the alliance isn't interested in doing that. And so Mon Mothma is not really painted in a particularly strong light. This is sort of before Leia has really um, taken her place in the rebellion. So, you know, that's probably part of the change that we see later. But yeah, this isn't uh, not the not the best showing for rebel command. And even so, when Leia takes her rightful position, or I, I don't know if we can even call it rightful, but when she does, it's not until other leaders like Mon Mothma have quasi-failed them. So, you know, she kind of is happy to keep doing the, the busy work and, and keep doing the diplomatic work and occasionally put herself at risk, but she ultimately isn't doing the grand planning as respects what a rebellion attack looks like. Yeah, and, and really, to be honest, she never... Even later, she doesn't really do a lot of um, a lot of sort of the planning and the legwork. She's she's much uh, more of a reactive leader um, and an inspirational one. But you know, I mean, take she's her example. She's the queen of England. Well, no, I <laughs> I would say that she's no, she's some yeah, she's kind of the the queen of England. But you could, I mean, she is. You know, if if you look at what she does at the Battle of Endor, instead of you know hanging back and planning the thing, she jumps in the shuttle and goes out there and does the thing. 
Right, which I, I think gives her a lot more credibility as a leader. So, you know, just to kind of set the backdrop of what we're looking at for season four, we have roughly 16 episodes. The last episode is an extended one to include an epilogue. And, and like Kevin said, we basically need to bring this back to where we started. We started on Lethal, we're going to finish on Lethal. And we're going to see kind of the rise of the rebellion. We're going to see some lost faith in the rebellion and the leaders associated with it. And we're basically going to find resolution for most of our favorite characters. So, uh, and one of the really cool things, I think, is that nearly every other episode arc is a two-episode storyline. So, you know, it was really designed to just be action-packed and to tie up as many loose ends as possible. And I think they did a really good job with that. Yeah. Um, and they were given, I mean, there was a really a challenge from day one of this show that they introduced two Jedi. And we know from, you know, having seen Rogue One and the original trilogy and everything else, those two Jedi are not, you know, major players in the events to come. So uh, wrapping up their stories in a satisfying way was, you know, probably always a challenge for, for these folks. And I think they, they, they did a really good job with it. Right. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to use the word satisfying, but we will say we wrapped it up. So let's go ahead and get into it. So we begin with a two episode introduction. We call him the Heroes of Mandalore. Um, here's a, another story bringing in closure to Sabine and Mandalore and her family. Uh, and they learn that the Mandalorians are using a weapon derived from one of Sabine's plans uh, back when she was an Imperial cadet. And she ultimately destroys it to take back to the or to take the planet back from Gar Saxon and ultimately Bo-Katan receives a dark saber. So, you know, the, this just really everything that we needed to wrap up Mandalore before we go into the Mandalorian, I think kind of happens in these first two episodes. W what do you think, Kevin? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, you know, I think that this you like it it wraps up a lot of her story because, you know, through the whole series, we wondered why she had to leave Mandalore. What'd she do? Why was she a traitor to Mandalore? And it turns out that when she was, you know, 14 or 15 at the Imperial Academy, for some reason, she designed this weapon that could, um, you know, that, that only affects people wearing Mandalorian Beskar armor and not stormtroopers. And why she designed this thing is, you know, she said it was, it was an engineering challenge and she met it. She didn't think anybody would actually build it. And so they built it. She destroys it. Um, I, you know, when we enter into this story, the last time that we saw her, she had left Mandalore and come to the aid of the evacuation of Chopper Base. So this is sort of their payback to her. And then at the end of this, like you said, she gives the Darksaber to um, Bo-Katan, who, you know, she offered it to her a couple times before and Bo-Katan turned it down. And then in sort of these final battles, um, Sabine says the people of Mandalore are ready to follow you and gives it to her and she brandishes it and everybody sort of bows down to her. And so she is ostensibly the leader of Mandalore until we find out what happened on, um, the night of a thousand tears. Yikes. Yeah. That's probably not a great day. Probably not. When do you think we're going to find out about that? October. Oh, I can't wait till October. Right. That's when the next season of Mandalorian drops in October. And I imagine we're going to learn all sorts of things in uh, October and November. You're probably right. I look forward to it, but I'm very anxious. I want to know now. Yeah. All right. Let's get back to Rebels here. Well, and just just on that point, before we get back to Rebels, <gasps> is that we're going to come back around a few times to where um, the next time we're going to see a lot of these folks and a lot of these stories is in The Mandalorian. Yeah. So if you haven't watched season one of The Mandalorian, which we've already talked about, 
there's plenty of time for you to watch it now. You might as well do it because Disney Plus is releasing Hamilton on July 3rd. So you could pre-watch Mandalorian and be teed up to watch Hamilton on July 3rd and totally get your money's worth. Anyway, Disney is not paying us money, so I will move on. Right. Um, episodes three and four, we've got In the Name of the Rebellion. And so this is, again, a nice uh, two-episode story arc. It really brings us back to Saw Gerrera. Uh, we we kind of talked about some of his storyline in season three, and I think we might have muddled the waters just a little bit in confusing what happened in season three and what happened in season four with Saw. But really, uh, Ezra and Sabine, they team up with Saw. Uh, they're spying on the Empire at an Empire outpost, and we learn about this ginormous uh, kyber crystal and what that's going to power. And it's going to power a Death Star. And we hear the phrase Stardust. So for all of you Rogue One uh, enthusiasts, you know where we're going with that. So this is going to really tee us up into going into Rogue One. Yeah. And so, you know, what we see in this is is two things, right? One, we we see Saw kind of sends a droid and infiltrates the main rebel base on Yavin 4. And he projects a hologram where he talks to Mon Mothma. And, you know, he calls her out for, you know, like the rebel command, basically, they find out about this Imperial command post. And instead of wanting to destroy it or anything, they say, let's put a tap on it and let's like sneak around and, and, and then use that so we can sneak around a little bit more. And he comes is like, why don't we just blow it up? Like, why, why are we why are we a rebellion and we're not willing to like fight? Right. And so she gets out there and she gives this impassioned speech about, you know, doing the, the, the right thing and diplomacy. And he kind of point he throws it back in her face. And he's like, where's that spirit and that fire when you're hiding there on Yavin? And so, um, you know, Phoenix Squadron gets sent to, to spy on this outpost. They, you know, hijinks happen. And then Saw shows up and he, he blows it up. And then he takes Sabine and Ezra with him on this this quest to find out what's going on with this shipment because he's really obsessed with finding the Death Star. And like, I guess the biggest outcome of that whole story is he sabotages a giant kyber crystal, which is, you know, nice to deny that to them. But he also finds out the name Jeddah. Um, and so this is really what takes him to Jeddah, which is where we find him at the beginning of Rogue One. So it sort of sets his story in motion. And then it, at the same time, he refuses to rescue prisoners um, in his quest to find out where this kyber crystal is going. And that really bothers Sabine and Ezra, who reject his notion of the rebellion. And so what we really see from them in this experience is they're not really comfortable with Mon Mothma's passive style. They're also not very comfortable with Saw Guerrera's, you know, no holds barred, uh, no rule style. And so this is part of their catalyst for leaving the, Rebe the, the Rebel Alliance in general and going back to doing things their own way. Right, which we need. We need to set up a reason for them to postpone their involvement with Rebel Alliance. We need them to go back to Lethal and wrap things up from where we started. Uh, the interesting thing, though, is Hera's not involved really in either of these first two episodes that much, and it's because she's so involved with Rebel Alliance. They've She's really super in, entrenched in everything that they're doing, and she's moving through the ranks, and so... You know, it, we talked about uh, Easter egg in Rogue One where they say Captain Sindula. General, because she's been promoted oh, to general yeah, she's at this been point. Promoted, yeah. And, and they're like, General Sindula, you know, she gets that little call out in Rogue One. So we know that she's super involved in what they're doing. And to Kevin's point, she's been promoted. So obviously her actions have not gone unnoticed. So that kind of moves us to episodes five and six, which just are not quite filler, but they kind of resolve some additional content. And one of the nice things that, uh, 
you know, we get brought back to is we've always had this theme of Ezra being really connected with animals. That's like his Jedi superpower. And we get this connection to the Loath Wolves, which I guess are just wolves, except they're on Lothal. But <laughs> yeah, I, I, I know we've said this before, but I really don't get this like Lothal local thing of, of putting Loth in front of all sorts of Loth cats and Loth wolves and Loth rats, I think. And, and like, why, why would you do that? They're, they're just cats. Yeah, but, you know, it's a thing that they do and we're going to go along with it because it doesn't really hurt anyone here. So Sure, sure. Yeah, so we, we see some connection to the Loath Wolves. They seem very strong with the Force. They seem to have secrets that they want to share, but they aren't quite ready to share them. Uh, we also have a resolution with our old friend Visago. So. Yeah, yeah, they run into him again and he basically joins their little, uh, their little rebel cell. Well, he got captured, right? And they had to free him. Yes. Yeah. And then after they free him, he d- he agrees to work with them, and he basically joins he joins their their team on Lothal. Right. And he could have gone back to just being a petty thug, criminal, whatever. But he was like, you know what? The rebellion freed me. I- I'm going to see what I can do to help them. And that's I think an important part because as we continue to see our uh, Phoenix Squadron friends, or you know the the crew of the ghost decide to separate themselves from the rebel alliance for season four they're going to need a few more folks to help them out so it's good that visago comes along for the ride yeah so then um when we get to the seventh episode we get introduced to a new villain and this guy is terrible yeah this is uh rook um so rook is a nograi which i don't know that his species name is actually named in um in Rebels, but he's based on a character from the original Thrawn trilogy that is now Legends canon. Um, but he's basically Thrawn's personal assassin. He is, um, he's just a, just an all around like weird little thing. He, you know, he sniffs everybody, but he's basically a tracker assassin, martial artist. He has an invisibility cloak for some reason. Um, and he's basically the guy that Theron sends out to, you know, dispatch his enemies. And they fight him several times. And I think the biggest, like, the biggest theme around him is uh, they should really just kill him. I, I'm like, I'm sorry, but uh, I, I'm going to take this rant. I know you're about to jump into it. But they had several opportunities when they captured this guy or when they had him in a position where they could have killed him. And instead, one time they just spray paint him colors and send him home. And another time they just leave him somewhere. Another time they run away from him. And they and they make this big thing about, like, we don't kill prisoners. But they're very happy to kill stormtroopers. They've very, killed so many stormtroopers. They've killed so many people. Like, Ezra, when he was 14, he started killing people, right? And so, like, the fact that because this guy has a name and he's a special, he doesn't get killed, is one of those sort of annoying movie tropes or TV tropes. But also, it's like... It's impractical because he keeps coming back and causing them problems. Right. And every time he comes back and he causes them problems, he ups up like the order of magnitude. So he's basically just this super villain that every time there's an opportunity to kill him, they specifically choose not to. But yet all of these unnamed folks, like you said, they have no problem just killing those guys. And we see that happening from the beginning of season three all the way through season four. Dozens, if not hundreds, of stormtroopers are killed. No questions asked. The rebels have no problems as far as their moral uh, quandaries. They they just really are totally uncomfortable when they've identified someone with a particular name or they've engaged them hand to hand combat. But as soon as you know, there's a little bit of a distance between it. You know, like 
it, it's the impressionist style of killing. Like they can't do it up close. They have to do it from a distance and then they're totally fine with it. Right. But they're, but at the same time, they're happy to destroy a star destroyer that is, you know, crewed by about a thousand people. And, you know, at the end of this episode, their, their grand plan is to take all of the Imperials on Lothal, bring them to one place and kill them all at once. And even while doing that, the governor, they offer to save her because they know her name. <laughs> Right. And the thing that just boggles my mind is like Han Solo, for example, we know wound up joining the Imperial Army because he had no other choices. There are plenty of people that had no other choices in their existence but to join the Imperial ranks. And so these are, you know, essentially complicit, but still just innocence. They, they really, you know, it's a choice between starving and dying or you know, not quite starving and not quite dying. I, I mean, they're, they're maybe not thriving, but that, that's the thing is that the rebels don't seem to discern a difference. Yeah. Yeah. It's wild. Um, but anyway, we do meet him and he starts causing trouble for everybody. Um, and so there are several different, you know, and, and basically through a series of, of things, Rook uh, finds the, um, the sort of rebel base on Lothal. And at this point, they've started assembling a larger crew. So I think by the time he finds them, um, Ezra and Sabine are there. Um, Zeb's there. Chopper. Uh, Hera is joining them shortly after that. And then they've also got guys like uh, Ryder Azadi, who is the former governor of Lothal, and a couple other um, sort of rebels that they met before. I forgot all their names, but it was another yeah, kid. It was Wedge. another kid crew. We, we've got a handful of folks that yeah. are that we've met throughout the earlier seasons and are now going to come along because. You know, it, it's they remember the people who helped them. They're going to help them back. Right. Uh, and then later they bring in they bring in uh, Rex, Gregor, um, Wolf and uh, Hondo. Right. Right. I love me some Hondo. Really yeah. do. Um, and finally, we get a little bit of relationship action here. So uh, at the end of this episode, it's called Kindred. We have uh, Kanan and Hera. They embrace for the first time on screen. Which is interesting because if we remember in season one, Hera keeps calling Kanan her love and my love and love, love, love. But we never see him hold hands, never see him kiss. They've hugged a couple of times, but finally they get down to kissing in season four. Yeah. And and they basically imply, you know, even even that before um, season one, they were they were together and that was part of the, you know, them forming a crew together. But um, but yeah, we finally see them like sort of express uh, their their physical romantic relationship. Um, and, you know, that's going to sort of run through the rest of the season. It does still feel like an an awkward, strained relationship. And that, as we pointed out before, like they have separate bunk. They've been together for a long time, but they have separate bunks. They don't really ever uh, express any sort of romantic feelings to each other. But as we're getting to drawing to the end of the story, we start to see that come out. Right. And what's really interesting is that it's like it seems so shocking to both of them that they're going to express this love verbally and physically. And that just to me seems really strange because it seems like they've spent a lot of time together and they probably should have covered this ground before. Yeah. But moving on, we, we have season eight. It's the or episode eight. We've got Crawler Commanders. Yeah, and basically this one is just this one is more or less filler. After Rook has found their base, and um, the the like, I guess the interesting thing at the end of Kindred is that um, after Rook destroys their base, um, the Loth Wolves rescue everybody, and they somehow carry them halfway across the planet into a different hemisphere. 
and set him up in these sort of caves. And then nearby, they find a ore mining machine and they take it over both to get a long range communicator to call in Hera and tell her that they need her help. But also um, they steal this like ore miner and attach it to their base and use it as more base, I guess. Um, and so this whole episode is more or less about them getting a long range communicator and getting Hera and the rest of the, the gang together. Right. So now that we've got the gang together, what are we going to do? We're going to lead an attack against Thrawn. And so Hera's the one to do that. Uh, you know, again, knowing that she's going to be promoted to general and just how she's so connected to the rebellion, this is an important step for her because she's taking the lead on a much bigger plan than she's really ever taken before. Yeah. And this plan goes wrong. I mean, she, you know, she leads this attack on Thrawn's fleet. And the attack does not go well. And she ends up driven to ground. Uh, her basically, her entire strike force of Y-Wings is destroyed. She and I think one other pilot survive. And they manage to find their way to the rebel base. But um, it really does not go the way they planned. Right. And she uh, eventually gets taken by Thrawn and needs to be retrieved. Because she is a leader. And... For whatever reason, our rebel friends have always prioritized individual lives over the entire cause itself, which, you know, does seem shocking considering they eventually wind up winning. But yeah. <laughs> that strategy normally doesn't work. But they have to go rescue Hera and Thrawn is interrogating her and he's got uh, what's her face who's horrible. Um, what the governor. Um Oh, man, why am I spacing on her name, too? Yeah, she's so mean. You just, oh, I hate her so much. Yeah, um, but basically the imperial governor of Lothal. And uh, she's not been particularly successful, but she starts torturing Hera. And basically she says she doesn't even ask any questions. And while she's torturing Hera, um, Thrawn gets a call from from Tarkin. And Tarkin says, hey, um, Orson Krennic has been pitching Project Stardust to the Emperor, and he's pitching it pretty well. I think your TIE Defender project needs a little bit more uh, Emperor attention. And, um, and, and Tarkin even says that he prefers the Defender project to Project Stardust and orders Thrawn to go back to Coruscant and explain what's going on to the Emperor. And so Thrawn leaves for a little while, which gives the Rebels a little bit of an opening. Um, and... Uh, Governor Price, her That's name just her popped name. into my, my head. Governor Price. So it basically leaves Governor Price in charge. Um, and so Thrawn leaves and she's still torturing um, Hera when they hatch an escape plan. And the escape plan is, you know, there's one interesting point in it. Um, Kanan is meditating and he comes to Ezra and says, I need you to lead the, the rescue of Hera. And he said, it needs, I will help, but it needs to be your plan and it needs to be your decisions. And Ezra's like, uh, okay, I guess. And then uh, he agrees to, to come up with a plan. Right. And so the episode is called Jedi Knight. And I think that this is really important because Kanan Jarrus has always thought that he was the quote-unquote last of the Jedi. He wasn't willing to own that. He kind of felt like the Jedi were killed with Order 66. And he just happened to be a force-wielding light side guy who survived. And he felt a guilt associated with that. And he didn't understand what he was supposed to do with that. And when he's meditating, he finally realizes what he's supposed to do. And he gets super serene and he realizes that, you know, 
things are probably going to work out, just maybe not the way that we all hoped that they would. But he knows as far as the force is concerned, things are going to work out. So he gives himself this super terrible haircut. A blind guy, well, people just shouldn't cut their own hair. And sure. When you can't look into a mirror to do it, that's it, probably an even worse idea. So Yes, and also when all you have is a knife and... Uh... Yeah, you should also not do it. But he does it anyway because... Does it anyway. Totally butchers his haircut. Um, Not great, but he uh, comes out of it. He he shaves as well. Um, So that, I, I guess, do you think shaving would be easier than cutting your own hair? Absolutely, because you can shave by touch. Oh, okay. I've, I've shaved without a mirror. You can shave your face without a mirror. Okay, I'll take your word for it. Yeah. A- anyway, back to the episode here. So Kanan is ready to go into battle, and it's very ceremonial what he does, but he, he's got a plan, and he's so thoughtful, and he just lets the force flow through him. Yeah, and so he, you know, they, they build some gliders or something, and they glide their way to um, the Imperial base, and they know that Hera is being kept in uh, Governor Price's office. And so um, while Ezra and... Uh, Sabine go to steal a ship to fly them back to their base. Uh, Kanan cuts her cuts his way into the office, and and there's a funny whole sequence because Hera has been injected with basic, basically truth serum, and she's acting kind of drunk, kind of truthy. And uh, there's some stormtroopers guarding her, and she's like, "Oh, you guys are about to die. I wonder how he's going to get in here." And then he cuts a hole in the floor, and one of them falls through, and she goes, "Huh? I thought he'd come in through the window." And you know, and then um, so he basically rescues her. And, you know, of course, it sets off alarms and stuff, and they're doing their usual um, escape through the base. The kids find a spaceship, um, and uh, Kanan and Hera tell them to meet um, meet them at the fuel depot. And meanwhile, Governor Price realizes where they are, has a bunch of um, AT-AT walkers uh, converge on the fuel depot, and orders them to open fire on the fuel pods that uh, Hera and Kanan are standing on. Governor Price is the worst. Yeah, she's pretty terrible, but she's really intent on uh, killing all these these folks. And so as they sort of swoop in to uh, to grab everybody, um, the fuel part starts exploding. Kanan uses the force to hold the explosion back just long enough for everybody else to escape. Right. And they are in the shuttle about ready to leave. And Hera realizes what Kanan's doing and she runs out trying to stop him and trying to bring him onto the ship. And he uses the force to push her back. And as he does that, he pushes the whole ship away and absorbs pretty much all of the explosions. So Kanan is dead. And I, I think one of the, you know, besides the fact that both of us were brought to tears during this episode and, you know, we've seen it multiple times and brought to tears multiple times. But, you know, the, the big lesson to this is that it's not really about killing your enemies, but it's about protecting those that you love. And we we hear Kara, uh, we hear Hera say that she loves Kanan, and you know I I think that it's very similar to you know the theme of our podcast I love you and I know that you know he he hears her say that and he uses that to propel himself into battle. Yeah, and um yeah, and so you know just as their relationship is kind of getting sort of out into the open and they're being a little bit more um you know, honest with themselves about it, uh, this happens. And Hera, of course, is devastated. Everybody's devastated, but she really feels like she wasn't ready for that. She wasn't expecting that. And it really changes her perspective on a lot of things. Um, you know, some of the things going forward after this, she 
used to feel like the team was invincible and now they feel very invincible. Definitely. And and that brings us to the last five episodes. So, you know, they get back to Lethal and everyone is really, really sad. Zeb is like, hey, way to go. You guys came back. And then he realizes that Kanan's not with them. And everyone feels like they've got a score to settle. And we see uh, the following episode is called Doom, which if you remember, uh, Kanan Jarrus's name before he was made a Jedi was Caleb Doom. Yeah. Um, and Yes. And so Doom sort of addresses sort of two two things. One, the Lothwolves really uh, take it up a notch with Ezra. So Ezra is now left as like the last force wielder here. And he com- he's trying to come to grips with why Kanan did what he did. And he does a lot of meditating. And then he gets chased by the wolves out into the desert or something and has some experiences with them. And, and there's a giant, giant wolf. Like, yeah. Loth wolves are big, but then there's like a super duper big wolf. Yeah. And the super duper big wolf can can speak. And so um, not particularly well, but gives him, you know, some hints. And what does he say his name is? He says his name is Doom. So is Caleb Doom now a wolf? Is that how he like joins the living force? Probably. That's crazy. That is crazy. But he was very connected to Lothal. And um, and the force and the wolves are connected. And so it seems like, yeah, that wolf is probably has at least some of the spirit of of Caleb Doom in him. And so that wolf tells Ezra to go to the Jedi Temple. And in meditating on that, Ezra also realizes and tells the rest of the team that Kanan actually basically he um, accomplished their mission. Right. In getting in, in in the way that he died, the, the fuel supply for the Imperial factory was destroyed and the factory, the TIE Defender factory was shut down. And so the thing that they've been trying to do this whole time, they finally accomplished and it cost them Kanan's life. But in so doing, he uh, he saved them all. Um, but uh, also the wolves gave. Ezra some instructions to go um, go to the Jedi Temple and see what was going on there. And it's and it's wild that that at no point did anybody ever think about, you know, they've been back on Lothal for a while and nobody thought to go visit the Jedi Temple. If you remember the last time we saw the Jedi Temple, um, the Inquisitors found it and uh, told Darth Vader about it. So the last time we saw the Jedi Temple on Lothal, uh, Darth Vader was in it. And we really don't know what happened to it after that. And this was like years ago. So what we do find out um, in the next couple of episodes is that Vader's reported back on that. There seems to be some crazy Jedi art that the Empire has learned about and they need to figure it out. And they think that there's something more going on in that Jedi temple than just a couple pieces of art. And they want to get to the bottom of things. And what's interesting is that the wolves are very connected to the temple. They know that Ezra needs to be in the temple. Ezra knows that he needs to be in the temple, but he doesn't entirely know what he's going to do when he's in there. So Sabine agrees to go with him and Hera and Zeb and Chopper are going to keep lookout. And so they ride the wolves because the it's basically the other side of the planet they got to get to, right? Yeah. And so they, they jump on the wolves and they ride. And then Ezra whispers in the one wolf's ear and they kind of go into the planet and through the planet um, and come out at the Jedi Temple. And while they're in there, they have this trippy experience and they hear voices of the past. They hear Ahsoka, who, if, if you remember, everybody thinks is dead at this point um, because she was last seen fighting Vader on Malachor. Um, you see, uh, Kanan in that little vision and, uh, and then they come out near the Jedi temple and they find that the, the empire, the temple has sort of sealed itself off and the empire has been excavating around it and, and uncovered this art. 
And the art is a mural of the father, the son, and the daughter from Mortis, which if you remember that subtle detail all the way back to uh, the Clone Wars, um, Mortis was a force-heavy planet somewhere in, hidden in the galaxy where the force was kept in balance by these three, these three beings. They brought Anakin and Ahsoka and um, Obi-Wan there. And the father basically said he was trying to keep balance between the daughter of the light side and the son of the dark side and offered Anakin as the, the chosen one his position of keeping balance. And Anakin rejected it and a whole bunch of things happened and all three of the Mortis gods died. And that set things into motion for Anakin to, uh, to fall to the dark side. Right. So when they sneak in, it's Ezra and Sabine. And just to give you guys some context, this episode is called Wolves and a Door. And the follow up episode is called A World Between Worlds. And so the wolves lead them there. And then when they sneak in, they sneak in as stormtroopers and they're trying to infiltrate. And truthfully, they don't do a very good job. But it turns out that uh, the stormtroopers that are already guarding the facility are uh, not that bright, and neither is this guy named Minister Hayden. He doesn't seem that smart either. I mean, he's smarter than the average villain, but not super bright. Yeah, he's one of um, he's one of Palpatine's kind of like courtiers. Um, I believe he's actually in Return of the Jedi. Um, in there's a scene in in the um in uh in the Emperor's throne room on the Death Star, and there are a couple of these like old guys walking around that he dismisses and sends to go off and do something. And I believe one of those is Minister Hayden. Um, and he's there to study the artifacts and try to figure out how to get into, he believes there's some sort of gateway. And so he's trying to figure out how to get into the gateway. Um, and Ezra is, you know, of course there because he's the force wielder, Sabine, because she's an artist. And, and she decodes um, a piece of, of stone with some symbols on it that the wolves give Ezra and figures out that, the position of the hands of the mortis mural are have meaning and tells Ezra to, you know, force them into the right positions. Right. So Ezra basically communes with the art and he opens up this gateway and he follows the wolves and then they lead to this like circle of wolves running and he realizes that this is a portal. So this is where we get to the world between worlds. Yeah. And it's really freaking cool. Yeah, this is this is sort of just like season six of Clone Wars. This is some very epic, um, you know, trippy force stuff. And so basically the world between worlds is a place where all time and space converge and you can go through doorways to any time in any 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 place. And Palpatine, of course, is kind of aware of this and is trying to find his way into it for obvious reasons. If you can do this, you can sort of control the entire universe. Um, and so Ezra goes running around trying to figure out what's going on. He runs into Morii, which is um, the little owl that is uh, an avatar of the daughter that has been protecting Ahsoka since the death of the daughter. And Morii leads him to a portal where he witnesses the end of the battle between Vader and Ahsoka on Malachor, where Vader is about to destroy her. And he reaches through the portal and pulls her into the world between worlds just as Vader is slashes at her and then sort of destroys the temple around himself. Um, and so then Ezra and Ahsoka have a little adventure in there where um, Palpatine shows up and tries to pull them out of the portal. And I think through some Sith magic, he basically, if he can, if he can, if he can touch them through the portal, then he can come into the world between worlds. I'm not exactly sure how that works, but it sort of doesn't matter. We're in a magic force portal zone. So, you know, whatever. 
Yeah, it seems odd that Ezra is the only one that can kind of move between the portals and the world between worlds. Uh, everyone else needs Ezra to like bring them wherever they want to go. Or in Ahsoka's case, she didn't know she wanted to be there. But when she gets there, she's happy she's there. Yeah. And so Ahsoka certainly is important because she helps Ezra def- defeat, well, not defeat, but at least escape from the Emperor. And so she sends Ezra back to the Jedi Temple on Lethal and was like, I'll catch up with you. Yeah. And while while he's in there, I think and I think one important thing that happens in here is when he after he rescues Ahsoka, he realizes that he could do the same for Kanan. And he finds the portal where Kanan dies. Ahsoka realizes what happened and says, No, 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 no. If you do this, if you pull Kanan out of there, you all die. First of all, and secondly, Kanan sacrificed himself for you. You have to honor that sacrifice and you have to learn to move past it. And Ezra says, I didn't realize that now, but I realize that now. Right. And that's part of the problem when you have like a 17 or 18 year old in charge of something so huge is that you just need more experience in order. It doesn't take away from the abilities of someone so young. But it does sometimes impact the reasoning abilities. And that's why teamwork's important. That's why having people around you with other experiences is important. And I think that, you know, if left to his own devices, Ezra would have destroyed all of their efforts and freed Kanan. But thank goodness for Ahsoka. That's right. And so Ahsoka basically, she has, she jumps back in the portal and goes back to Malachor, where she goes into waiting in a cave um, and tells Ezra that she'll find him later. Uh, Ezra jumps back into the temp, you know, out to the temple at Lothal and then subsequently closes the portal, destroying that access to the world between worlds and basically levels the temple. And like the temple basically destroys itself, destroys all the Imperials and literally levels the ground around it and leaves only um, our heroes behind. I guess Minister Hyden probably gets away because, like I said, he I'm definitely pretty sure he's in return. But. Essentially, we learned that the Jedi Temple was there for Ezra and Kanan and, and Ahsoka earlier to have learned additional Jedi secrets that the Jedi were not destroyed with Order 66 and there were more secrets that needed to be shared. And we saw at one point Yoda was in there. So Yoda's probably familiar with some of these secrets as well. But really, this experience was to pass on knowledge that was important to Ezra. And that basically brings us to the last two episodes of the series yeah and so this is now you know Ezra's sort of found peace with the whole Kanan situation and with with everything else he's found peace with the Lothwolves there's a really great line actually it's it's before the the temple sequence when they're um they after they ride the wolves and um and Zeb says something to to Ezra like I'm glad the wolves are on our side. And, and Ezra says, they're not on our side. They're on Lothal's side. And they said, isn't that the same thing? And he says, I hope so. Um, and so this is sort of the final push where um, they decide to um, rid Lothal of the Imperials. And the way they go about it is pretty wild. They basically, um, you know, they've now at this point, they've got Rex, Gregor, Wolf. They've got Ryder Azadi. They've got Vizago. They've got um, Sabine and... Kane or sorry Sabine and Hera and um Ezra and Chopper and Zeb and Callus and yeah and Zeb and Callus and those other kids from that other ship and so and and then like a few other random rebels but what they do is they have Ryder Azadi reach out to uh Governor Price and offer to turn in the whole rebel group and um she believes that he's you know turning on them and she sends a group he tells them where the base is she sends a group they battle it out 
Um, some of the folks fly in in the ghost, take out her ships, and basically capture her. Uh, Rook's there, and they once again fail to kill him. Good job, guys. Um, and uh, and so they what they do is they kidna- they capture the the governor, and they tell her to fly back to her dome with them as her pseudo prisoners, so that they can get into the dome. And their basic plan is to recall all Imperial troops to the to the Imperial Dome, launch it into space, and blow it up, and thereby killing all the Imperials, which is, once again, as we go back to, like, they're willing to kill an awful lot of people um, as long as they're anonymous. Cool. Um, and the plan gets underway, and the first parts work out, and they get back to the Dome, and who shows up? Thrawn. Yeah. He's on his way back from Coruscant, and he basically parks the Chimera, his Star Destroyer, right over the dome and says, if you take off, you're going to crash into me and smash your city. If you, um, and if you don't surrender, I'm going to obliterate your city. And he starts an, an, an orbital bombardment of the main city of Lothal, and people are screaming and running in the streets. And then they have to hatch this whole plan to get like the planetary shields up, which, of course, because they didn't kill Rook. He's broken into the place and taken the shields down, so they've got to, like, defeat him again. And through all of this, Ezra sneaks out of the base uh, and surrenders himself to Thrawn. And the really interesting part to me about all of that is that he tells Sabine, like, you're the one that I count on most. And it almost implies that he's got more of a relationship than we've been led to believe with Sabine. But she distracts everybody else and lets him get away and lets him surrender to Thrawn. Right, and it turns out that Thrawn isn't quite the villain that we thought he was because what he's been charged to do is to bring Ezra back to the Emperor. Yeah, and and for some reason, they took part of the uh, Jedi Temple and rebuilt it on the Star Destroyer, and it has this particular portal in it that, that would let Ezra go to the past where his parents are still alive and like rejoin them implicitly taking him out of the timeline and undoing all of this stuff or implicitly unlocking the ability for the emperor to do that with other things. It's not really clear what it is that the emperor is trying to get him to do, but the emperor projects himself in a hologram of like his pre fall to the dark side look and you know, his old, like his old Palpatine look before he got all wrinkly and craggy. And, you know, Sweet tries to sweet talk Ezra into like, you deserve to be with your parents, blah, blah, blah. And Ezra eventually figures it out and smashes the, the thing and um, fights his way to, to uh, Thrawn's bridge over like a whole bunch of, you know, stormtroopers and these red suited guard guys that have weapons. And he's hucking rocks with the force and, and doing all this stuff because he doesn't have his lightsaber. And he battles his way onto Thrawn's bridge and, you know, kills off all the stormtroopers around him and, you know, kind of does the whole you failed Thrawn whole situation. Right. So um, while he's doing that, our friends on Lethal, they manage to uh, pull one over on Governor Price, pull one over on Thrawn, and they basically liberate Lethal. Yeah. I mean, they, you know, they manage to, uh, they take out Rook. Uh, they get, Finally. Yeah. And, and you know what's crazy is that in the end, Zeb does it, and he does it in a pretty brutal way. Like, they don't just shoot him. Um, Zeb basically uses some metal and ties him to like the shield generators and then they turn the planetary shield on and electrocute him and then he gets on his comm link and Thrawn is calling him and Zeb goes uh he's a little busy right now oh never mind he's not gonna call you back and then chucks the comm link and it's like man you just you really like executed this guy (laughs) 
in all fairness, he totally had it coming. Um, and if they had gotten around to like actually executing him many of the other times they had a chance, which I'm not like pro execution, don't get me wrong. But in this instance, Rook, he, he totally had it coming and he was a bad guy and he brought nothing but badness everywhere he went. That's right. So they get the shield up. Thrawn can't bombard the planet anymore. And Ezra had one last contingency plan and he told some of his guys to fly around in the ghost broadcasting on what's called frequency zero to call in the Pergils. And if you remember Pergils from an episode long ago, they seem like a random insertion in the middle of the story. Flying space whales. Flying space whales. And they show up and just tear the crap out of the Imperial space presence. Um, Because Ezra sort of communicates to them through the force and says, hey, these are the bad guys. And and so the the space whales um, basically wrap themselves around Thrawn's main Star Destroyer, Ezra stays on board, holding Thrawn back with the Force, holding the Pergils, and they all jump into hyperspace. And Which they shouldn't be able to survive. In theory. In theory. In theory. Right. And, and so Ezra's managed to say his goodbyes. He saved Lethal. He once again reaffirms his ability to communicate with animals and his connection to the Force through them. And... Thrawn, that guy totally had it coming. He was a good villain, very good villain, but yeah. had it coming. So, yep. And so, um, with that, the dome, they do manage to blow up the Imperial Dome with all the Imperials in it. The Pergils took out their space presence. And so, this little group that left the Rebel Alliance has now liberated Lothal from all Imperial presence, has shut down the Imperial TIE Defender Factory, killed the TIE Defender program, eliminated Thrawn somehow. Don't lost- forget, Governor Price uh, decided to let herself go. Oh, that's right. She, she had, they, they offered, again, they offered to rescue her from the dome, and she's like, nah, I'm good. And so she gets blown up. I think she realizes that whatever existence she might have, should she be returned back to the Empire, probably not great. No. And also didn't want to live in a prison of the rebellion either. Yeah. So, yeah. So the planet is free. And uh, and so then we jump sort of into uh, into the epilogue. Yeah. So we are 10 years after uh, the Battle at Endor, right? Uh, I don't think it was that long after the Battle of Endor. Five years? It's, they don't really say how long after, right? But we've jumped about 10 years into the future or eight years or so into the future of the show where we're some indeterminate time after the Battle of Endor. Right. And, and the reason that we know that we're after the Battle of Endor is that Sabine Wren tells us specifically. And the reason that we know we're somewhere in the eight to 10 years, Mark, is that uh, we see uh, Hera flying her ship and she's got a little baby. Well, not even a baby. He's yeah. an eight or 10 year old boy. Yeah. And um, and so and and the one the way that they describe it in the epilogue is they're like, you all know how like Jason Sindula, you all know what his father was like. And quite clearly, he's because he's he's at least half human. And she's, of course, a Twi'lek. Um, and so this is Kanan and Hera's baby. Right, which again, this might be slightly mature subject matter here. So if you're a little listener, um, fast forward. But I mean, essentially, when did they have time? It doesn't make any sense. They hardly spend any time. They hardly communicated their feelings. They had separate bunks and they were separated for the first like five episodes of the season. So that would presumably be, you know, when when things might have been happening. So. Well, well, right. And and actually, moreover, right. Hera shows up, she crashes, she and Kanan like hug in an alleyway, and then she's basically immediately captured after that. And the next time we see them, 
she, you know, they're escaping and he dies. Right? And she's heavily drugged and there's apparently no damage. Right. And so it's like, it is very unclear when like, there's, there's a little bit of a gap in the, uh, there's maybe a, a little loophole there that, yeah, they really did not have an opportunity unless this was sometime bef- when they were both on Yavin before they went back to Lothal must've been the time that, cause they, they had probably a little bit of downtime there. Right. But I mean, I, I'm just saying if they're, uh, you know, making babies or a baby, if they're making babies, but not actually saying I love you, but then they finally say I love you and they're surprised about it. That's really shocking. Yeah. Yeah. All of that shocking. And, and maybe it's because you and I have what I would like to call a very healthy relationship that we say I love you quite frequently. Um, I know. <laughs> but the whole thing just doesn't make a lot of sense. But it's a really sentimental thing that is important to know that Hera's relationship with Kanan is not going to be something that just ends. She's always going to have that remembrance. And that potentially there's another Jedi to be made, too. Yeah, that's right. Um, and then the other the other big important part of the epilogue is Sabine gives this speech about how, you know, she said uh, Ezra, you know, said that I can, you know, he can always count on me. And she said at first she thought that meant to defend Lothal. Um, she said, you know, they stayed, they decided to stay on Lothal and not rejoin the, uh, rejoin the rebellion because they thought the empire would be back and the empire never came back. Um, and after the battle of Endor, they knew they weren't coming back. And then she had this epiphany that Ezra intended for her to come look for him. And so somehow she calls out and she gets a hold of Ahsoka who has found her way off of Malachor and Ahsoka shows up and basically we're left with the idea that Ahsoka and Sabine are going to go on a quest to find Ezra. And Ahsoka's got this really awesome look going. She's wearing a white cloak over her head and she has this tall white staff. Don't know why she has a staff, but very it's wizard-like. very wizard-like. It's very cool. Um, and uh, and so we, the last we see of them is Ezra and Sabine uh, getting in a shuttle to go try to find Ezra. Ahsoka. Or sorry, Ahsoka and Sabine getting in a shuttle trying to find Ezra. Right. And I, I think what's really cool about the way everything wraps up is that we learn that Hera and Rex were at the Battle of Endor. Yes. Um, we, we learn that Hera's a mother. We learn that... Um, Callus has decided to join Zeb and he goes off and he finds his family. He, despite having accidentally genocided most of a planet, he's able to be welcomed in by the remainder of their species and to be a family there. That's incredible. Um, just the amount of forgiveness that... Um, the Lassats? Yeah, that, yeah, that's incredible. I, I don't I personally don't know if I'm capable of that level of forgiveness. And so just to see how big hearted they are and that, you know, Callus has found his place that that's huge. Yeah. Um, Ezra, the fact that he might be somewhere in the galaxy, we don't know. But the fact that there's a quest for him, that's exciting content that we might see in The Mandalorian. Yes. Yeah. I mean, there are very well there. There are confirmed rumors that Ahsoka is going to appear in the Mandalorian and Sabine and Sabine is going to appear in the Mandalorian and implicitly the the timeline of the Mandalorian lines up with their quest. So presumably they're still looking for Ezra, though I've heard the shadow of a rumor that they're also casting an Ezra for live action. And the and the word on the street right now is that if um, Ahsoka and Sabine in The Mandalorian are well received. They're going to get their own live action show. Um, there is 
there is a plan to do some sort of follow-on show that almost certainly stars those two. It was originally going to be animated, but when they got added to The Mandalorian, the, the, the rumors changed to that being basically a screen test for them to be a, the, a pair in a live-action show that's going to deal with their quest for Ezra, probably finding Ezra, maybe something to do with Thrawn, Moff Gideon. I'd love to see a live-action Thrawn. That would be cool. He may or may not, because if Ezra's alive, then Thrawn is presumably alive, doing whatever Thrawn does. But Ezra could have been kept alive by the Force. Remember, he's got that ability to go dark side, and it's apparently easy to stay alive when you feed on the dark side of the Force. So That's true. There could be that whole nuance, too. There could be, right? But, um, you know, I, I'm just excited to see Ahsoka and Sabine more because they're two of my favorite characters in all of this. Um, and uh, the more I can get of them, the better. Agreed, agreed. So the theme of family, um, we... Even though I wouldn't necessarily describe it as a very healthy relationship, but the, that romantic love between Hera and Kanan is really important. It's that partnership slash brother-sister relationship between Ezra and Sabine. I, I don't think it ever really went more than that. Um, that Anything that might have been romantic fizzled out. Probably. But um, that sense of belonging and family from everyone, it just that's what the season's about. And we were watching something the other night of, just about you know family being the theme throughout Star Wars and all the content that we've seen you know we we want to look for relationships that we can identify with and family is one of those big things that comes to mind and you know when you dig into what is everyone's desire what is the drive behind what's happening you know family is always there yeah and that's really I mean that is the underpinning of a lot of Star Wars from you know Anakin you know, losing and trying to find a new family. Ray is looking for family. Luke is finding his father and his sister. Um, Han is finding, you know, Chewbacca is his is his brother buddy, and and then him finding, you know, his way. Ben, you know, Ben Kylo having a, a lot of conflict about family. Um, you know, and and even up to and, and including the the idea that Anakin Vader. Um, was really looking for a father the whole time and ended up having to be the father to Luke that he never had himself. That was, I stole that from David Filoni, but that was a, a really nice speech he gives. Um, and so, yeah, and and so that's really the, the wrap up of this is that, you know, all these folks from Hondo, who is, you know, the self-serving pirate joins this thing because, you know, Ezra asked him to through, you know, multiple species, um, you know, multiple different circumstances you know, Callus coming from the Empire and turning over and joining the rebels and, and they all become basically a big family and they fight for something and they defend their home and uh, and they succeed. And so for once, we have sort of an uplifting ending um, to uh, to a Star Wars, you know, chapter. Uh, and uh, and so then, you know, we move on to, you know, in the canon, we move on to Rogue One and, and then into like the heart of the rebellion and uh, the Galactic Civil War. Right. And I think what is really good is that this answers all the questions as to why didn't we see these characters in Rogue One or, you know, A New Hope. So pretty much everyone is tied up in a nice little bow. We know what happens to them or we're going to find out later on what happens to them. So I, I think it's just it's such a satisfying season and yep. it's such a great way to end a show that initially I pushed back on wanting to watch once again not really big on a cartoon that I thought was for little eight-year-old boys but 
as soon as Ezra lost his slingshot, this was very clear that this was a show for thoughtful individuals of any age who were ready to contemplate some really big ideas. Yep. So, well, great. Well, usually ask me this, but I'm going to turn it around on you. Where do we go from here? Oh, where don't we go from here, I guess? I, I mean, so we, we were talking the other day about other medium that are very similar themes to Star Wars and what we see that may be inspired by Star Wars. We were talking about some of the Legends books that you're trying to get me to read. Uh, we're, we're talking about some of the things that maybe are not so positive. Like we really haven't touched on Darth Plagueis. Uh, we, we can look at some of that. Uh, I haven't played any of the games, but there's a lot of Star Wars uh, media out there related to the games. And apparently, uh, you know, we're, we've got some documentaries out there that we haven't even scratched the surface of. So I could go anywhere. Yeah, there's I'll go uh, anywhere with you. Oh, I'll go anywhere with you. There's a whole lot of galaxy out there for us to explore. So uh, stay tuned and there's more to come. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I love you. I know. <laughs>